We're continuing our series this fall, Understanding God's Love. And like Charles, uh, let you know. And doesn't Charles just have the perfect voice for doing this? I mean, that's amazing. I'm so jealous of your voice. As Charles mentioned, uh, James is away speaking at a missions conference. And as our practice, James usually takes off from preaching about one out of four. And when he does that, we will have live preaching uh, in the fellowship hall. So that'll be regular. It'll be about once a month. And so I am doing that today. And we will begin reading in Hebrews chapter 12, looking at the first two verses today and looking at the question of why. Why does God love us? So turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 12. We're just going to read the first two verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you love us. And we're so grateful that we get a chance to take time out from our busy weeks to come to you and to find rest for our weary and our burdened souls. Holy Spirit, only you can do that through your word. And we ask boldly For you to do this for the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, even if you've never seen the 1984 film, Places in the Heart, you are probably familiar with Sally Field's acceptance speech of her Academy Award. You could probably all quote it. I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. Everybody has seen that spoof, maybe even just on Saturday Night Live or by Jim Carrey in The Mask. Most of us are not actors or actresses wanting to be liked, but if we're all honest, all of us want to be loved. It may not be the academy, it may simply be the public. It may be that you want to be respected, or you may want to have the affirmation of friends or coworkers or a spouse or of your parents or for your children. All of us want to be loved. It's fascinating. I was reading one article this past week that showed that recent neuroimaging has actually shown that we receive just as much pleasure from a smile from a stranger as we do eating a bowl of ice cream. You could almost say, actually, you could say, we are all hardwired to be loved. And all of us, in one way or another, are asking this question, have I done enough to be loved. You know, it's what we do when we propose to someone in marriage. It's why it's so terrifying because in that moment when you get down and you're proposing, you're hoping that you've done enough in the courtship or in the dating process that this person is going to say yes, that they do love you. In this moment, 
It is this unmasking that you have this desire to be loved. And there's also a fear of rejection that you won't be loved. And if we're honest, the world tells us that we have to earn love, that we have to merit love. And I don't know about you, but if we're constantly trying to achieve the love of someone else, you will never, ever find rest for your soul if it's based on your merit and on your achievements alone. So now let's apply this to our relationship with God. Why would God love us? Well, that's the question we're going to look at this morning, and we're actually going to look at it in three categories. We're going to look at the why, the how, and the what. Or another way to put it, we're going to look um, at the mystery of God's love, we're going to look at the method of God's love, and we're going to look at the model of God's love. Let's first look at the mystery of God's love. If we're honest, we have to admit it's quite a puzzling thing that God loves us because as Charles pointed out, God knows everything about us. He knows all of our thoughts. He knows all the things that we do that we would be ashamed of if anyone else knew that we did them. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we even hide a part of ourselves from even us. And so how could God love us. He does. And that is puzzling, and that is amazing. Now, this is a hard question to answer in one passage. Why does God love us? So let me just give you a few reasons why I think the Bible tells us that God loves us before we get into our text. The first reason I think that God loves us is this. God loves us because he made us. Genesis 2 tells us that the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground, and then into his nostrils he breathed life, and he turned man into a living creature. You see, anything that you create, you have a tendency to love. God is an artist, and we are made in his image And it makes sense that he loves us because he made us. Think about it just for a moment. I have a three-year-old who loves doing art right now. He loves going to art class. He brings his picture home. And to him, that picture is like Van Gogh's Starry Night. That thing is a masterpiece. Or try stepping on one of your kid's Lego creations and see how that goes. We have a tendency to love what we make and what we create. And so surely God loves us because he made us. But you see, our relationship with God is way more intimate than this. And we are missing something if we only relate to God as a creator. A good reason, but not enough. Well, let me give you another reason why God loves us. And you're not going to like this one. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28 actually tells us that God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. Did you hear that? God chose us because we are foolish 
and weak, and he gets more glory. It's like, right, if a World Series manager win, or if a manager wins the World Series with a bunch of scrubs, he gets a whole lot more credit. You see, God loves us because we're foolish and weak, but we are missing something if we only think God loves us out of pity and if we have to grovel before God. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, I know other reasons why God loves us. Well, a third reason why God loves us is this. God loves us because we are hidden. What do I mean by that? That's that passage from Romans 8, 39, where it declares, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor rulers, nor angels, nor things that are present, nor things that are to come, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us because we are in Christ Jesus our Lord, that through faith we are in union with Jesus Christ, And so when God the Father looks at us, he sees God the Son. And when God the Father sees God the Son in us, then God the Father is well pleased. God loves us. Why? Because we are hidden in Christ. But even with that, we're missing something if we are always hiding from God. Well, let me give you another reason, and this is where it gets puzzling, where it's really just a mystery. The fourth reason why God loves us is this. God loves us. Are you ready? God loves us because he loves us. (laughs) Deuteronomy chapter 7, when God was talking about the nation of Israel, says this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This verse says he loves you. Why? Because he loves you. Yes. I squeezed three years of seminary into eight I had to take 160 credit hours for a 109-hour degree. And my answer for why does God love you? I don't know. He just loves you. Brilliant, Pastor. Thank you. But I'm not alone. It's the song we're going to sing in just a few minutes. How deep the Father's love for us. You know that line we say over and over, right? Why should I gain from his reward? What's the answer? I cannot give an answer. It's a mystery to some extent why God loves us. So we see these four answers, right? The biblical tells us that we have value because we are image bearers. It tells us that we should have humility because of reality. It tells us that we have worth by association. And it tells us that we should be amazed because he loves us. But there's a fifth reason in Hebrews chapter 12. Did you see it? In verse 2, the beginning, it says, Looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 
Now think about that. It says, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was not joy, but the cross will bring him joy. So what was the joy that was set before Jesus as he knew what was about to come upon him? What was it that he had in mind that enabled him to endure the cross? It was the joy set before him. Now, what was this joy? Well, one pastor said, think about it this way. Before Jesus ever came to the earth, he already had a crown of glory. Before Jesus ever came to the cross, he already had a relationship with God. He had the approval of his heavenly Father. What was the one thing that Jesus did not have and why he went to the cross It was us. It was you. It was me. We are the joy. The salvation of the church is one of the reasons why God loves us. God loves us, Hebrews tells us, because it brings him joy. The biblical pictures abound about God's love for us and the joy that we bring to Jesus. It's like a shepherd rejoicing over his sheep. It's like the poor woman who rejoices over finding the lost coin, the farmer rejoicing over his harvest, the warrior rejoicing over his conquest, the king rejoicing over his kingdom, a father rejoicing over his children, and a bridegroom rejoicing over over his bride. That's the imagery of the joy that the church brings Jesus. You know, Jesus is the greatest picture of marriage. When we look at all the pictures in the Old Testament, Jesus is the greater Jacob who worked for 14 years to secure Rachel. Jesus is the greater Hosea who loved and sacrificed For Gomer, Jesus is the greatest husband who ever lived, and he loves his bride, and his bride is us. That's why Ephesians 5.32 refers to marriage as a mystery. And it says this mystery is profound, and it refers to Christ and the church. He will rejoice over us with singing. Do you understand that? Do you realize that one of the reasons why Jesus endured the cross was because you, you bring him joy. So now we've seen several reasons why God loves us, but this passage also tells us how he did it. Look at verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I'm going to warn you. I can't read this verse without preaching, all right? So if one of you wants to say amen or preach it or throw a shoe at me or do anything like that, I'm about to preach this verse, all right? It says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. 
It doesn't say that Jesus is a pioneer to follow. It doesn't say that Jesus is simply a teacher to instruct us. This verse tells us that Jesus is the beginning. He is the author of our salvation, and he is the finisher. He is the perfecter. Jesus is not an example for us to emulate, but he is our substitute who ran the race for us. And what did he endure? He endured the cross. And how hard was the cross? Incredibly hard. You see, we believe as Christians that 2,000 years ago, Jesus really died on a cross, a gruesome death. It's not a metaphor. He suffered on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and it was his joy and salvation to do this for us. You think about it. Jesus was born. He lived a perfect life. And when he finished the race, he didn't get a crown of of glory. What did he get? He got a crown of thorns. You see, when Jesus came to earth, On the cross, all the weight of eternal justice for sin was put upon him. And because Jesus ran the race for us, we didn't receive a crown of thorns. But by grace through faith, we receive a crown of glory. All the weight of eternal glory for his righteousness comes down on us. And that's not the end of the story because it tells us what? That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. After he endured the cross three days later, he rose again and the tomb was empty. Hear this very clearly this morning. The gospel is not that we run the race and then God blesses us. But the gospel is, is that Jesus runs the race, he earns the victory, and then he credits us with his reward, which is what? Life everlasting. You see, it's the gospel versus religion. One is based on your merit, the gospel, or the religion, and one is based on Jesus' merit, which is the gospel. You see... The gospel is very different from the way that the world loves. We love someone if they meet standards, but God loves those who don't. I love this quote by Henry Nouwen. He says, the world says, yes, I love you if you are good looking, intelligent, and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, and buy much. And there are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me since it is impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. As long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, And trying again, it is the world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest cravings of my heart. 
Friends, this fall, what we've been impressing upon everyone here at McLean Presbyterian Church is this, that if you understand the gospel, if you understand God's love for you, then your experience of the Christian life is an experience of love because God's love is free, unmerited, and undeserved. It is love without motive. What does that mean? It means no beauty, no education or achievement can make him love you any more. And it means no failure, no stumble, no shame can make him love you any less. It's that next line in how deep the Father's love for us. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. He endured the cross. That's how he loves us. And it makes all the difference in the world. And then finally, let's look at the model of God's love. Look at verse 1. What difference will this make in our lives? It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. The context of Hebrews chapter 12 is a race. And what we are told here is as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we see his joy in us, as we anticipate our salvation, that fuels how we run the race, how we live our lives. And it says we are to look at Jesus. It's present tense. It means deliberately and constantly get your eyes on Jesus. Fixate on him. He's the author. He's the perfecter. Christ is preeminent in all things. Look to him constantly, trustfully, submissively, and lovingly. And when we do this, when we fixate our eyes on Jesus, and when we understand that we are his joy, then it says, then it says, we will be able to lay aside and to run with endurance. It says, lay aside. Lay aside any of those sins that cause us to struggle or entangle our Christian life. Now, most pastors right here will give you a sermon illustration about a marathon, but I don't run. I don't even do 5Ks. Somebody tells me, hey, you want to go run for four hours? No, nah, I'll pass. So I got to come up with a different illustration. I don't like running for four hours, but some of you may know this. At one point, I used to rodeo. I used to ride bulls. That was one of the ways that I was putting my way through seminary. I'd prefer to try to hang on for eight seconds and try to ride a run for four hours. And so when you're going to go bull riding, what do you do? You ought to go to school for that. So I went to Lyle Sankey Rodeo School. And one of the first things that Lyle teaches you is this, is when you get thrown off the bull, you better let go. Because most of the time, if you've ever seen bull riding, when you see a rider get hung up on the back of a bull, he's actually not hung up on the back of the bull. His hand's not stuck. He just cannot let go. 
He just cannot in his mind tell himself that it is better to let go of that bull and to fall off. And that's what Paul or that's what Hebrews is talking about here. Sin is dangerous. It's hard to let go. But let go of anything that is hindering you that is dangerous. Now, I recognize most of you probably hadn't ridden bulls, so I'll give you another illustration, right? (laughs) It's like if you're going to go out for a run, because I know all of you run. It's one of the first things we noticed in D.C. We moved here, and it's like 10 degrees below, and you're out running outside. You people are nuts. You're crazy. Like the, what, the second or third fittest city in the United States? But imagine if you go to the gym, and you grab two 30-pound weights, and you go out and try to run a race, you got to let go of all those weights or it's just going to be a hindrance. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us, when you see that you are the joy of Christ, you will be able to let go of anything that hinders you. And the second thing it tells us to do is to run with endurance. Press on. Think about the cross. It was not easy. And Jesus endured. And because Jesus endured, we can endure. When you think about his love for us, we know it well, right? It was not the nails that held him there. It was his love for us that held him there. So when we see him endure for us, then we can endure for him and to press on. Here's the point. If we understand that we are the passion of his life, that we are his joy, then he will become the passion of our life, our joy. You see, kindness draws us to repentance, but the joy of Christ leads to obedience. I love the way Donald McLeod puts it. He says, our service is the spontaneous overflow of powerful Christian joy deeply rooted in union with Christ and sharply focused on the beauty of his gospel. Where there is such joy, there can be no lukewarmness. It overflows in spontaneous obedience. What is greater than to know that we are the joy that was set before Jesus? That's why He loves us. It's one of the many reasons why he loves us. Do you know that right now? Have you experienced the joy of Christ? I hope that you have. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach the table, this is our prayer. That you haven't just given us your word to know that you love us but you've given us something to appeal to our senses, that we can see the bread and we can see the cup, that we can taste the sweetness, and that we can even smell the bread. So, Father, as we come to this table, I pray that this would be an experience of your love. Father, do this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this meal, this Lord's Supper, is one of the primary ways that we know that we are the joy of Christ. 
This is one of the ways that we are to experience the height, the breadth, the depth, and the length of Christ's love for us. If you go back to the Old Testament book, Nehemiah, there's a place where they're building the wall. And then when Ezra comes out and he reads the law, the people begin to weep. And Nehemiah says, we don't need to weep. You need to go out and eat some good food and and drink some good drink. And you need to come back and you need to celebrate. Why? Why does Nehemiah do this? Because in Nehemiah 8.10, he says, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Friends, this is the joy of the Lord. And it is set before us today. And as this table is set before us, it fuels our obedience and enables us to run the Christian life. So friends, I would invite you to come to this table If you are under the covenant of baptism and if you are in the care of the church, then this table is for you. If you're not sure, if you're the joy of the Lord this morning, then it's a great time to think about that. And we are so glad that you are here this morning. But but as we do before every meal, let me open us, let me pray for our meal. Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would set apart this bread and cup from a common to a holy use, that by grace, through faith, you might actually really and actually do something in the depths of our souls, that we might experience the love of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.